Hello everybody, it's that time of the year, or it will be a time of recording in a few weeks when the Oscars ceremony take place in mid-March. That can only mean one thing, the episode that really myself and Ben have to do through gritted teeth, year in, year out, it's the Foreign Language Oscars nomination process. Ben? Yeah. It is a very true statement, what I've just said. We do do it through gritted teeth. Um, We do. Even when we've got one of our favourite directors, like Thomas Vinterberg, do a film for it last year, we still had to watch the other ones as well. Yep. Um, And actually, I think we both enjoyed Lunana Yak in the Classroom. Oh, no, that was great. That was a great... So it it can be a really tolerable experience for the both of us. Yep. Um, So we'll see how this one goes. (laughs) I think this would be better if we had the five films that we wanted. 100%. Because unfortunately, uh, we haven't. Now, because of the horrible timing of the Oscar ceremony this year, mid-March instead of the end of March, two of the films that have been uh, nominated for the final list of the Foreign Language Oscar are currently unavailable to us. Uh, Barely out or not even out yet, so we can't get our hands on them, basically. So... We've got three out of the five, which we'll be starting off with. And then we'll be moving on to two of the semi-finalists. Two films that the Academy deemed not worthy for the ceremony. Hmm. Picking up that almighty foreign language Oscar, which of course is always accurate, always correct. And uh, justifies the entire history of world cinema and indeed the year in world cinema, Ben, in 2022. It's always the best foreign language film of the year. Always, always, always the best foreign language film of the year. Right. <laughs> so, I think I didn't add up the sums exactly, Ben, but in this in this episode, we've got at least 12 to 13 hours of films to talk about. Wow. Okay. So, well, it's around that. And I know they're all, they're all two hours. I think The Quiet Girls may be a bit less. Yes, Quiet um, Girls noticeably less. Yeah, but noticeably. But all the others are two and a half. Wow. So, um, yeah, we're looking at 10, 11, 12 hours worth of cinema okay. on this podcast. Let's try and see if we've got some agreement going on this thing for film of the month. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we'll make our predictions as well based on the three that we've seen, which one we think will actually take um, the gong, as it were, yeah. or indeed if one of the other two we hadn't seen yet, we're just going to predict whether they're better or not. Uh-huh. <laughs> Who knows? Right. Then we're going to start off over to you. Heading over to Argentina, who are relatively successful in this category. They they get nominated relatively infrequently, but certainly more than anybody else in South America, outside mm-hmm. of Chile most probably. So what have we got for our first foreign language Oscar nomination for 2023 from Argentina? Well, we've, we've got Argentina 1985. Um, Santiago Maita's story of a team of lawyers takes on the heads of Argentina's bloody military dictatorship during the 1980s in a battle against odds and a race against time, which is uh, which makes it sound a little bit more exciting than it perhaps is. <laughs> I sat down to watch Argentina 1985 with strongly with the feeling that I was going to watch a kind of a TV movie slash Wikipedia page about the event. And I don't know much about the the military dictatorship of Argentina. So where we are when the film begins is we're, we're confusingly in Argentina 1983 at the start of the film. I thought, oh, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> um, 
But we're at the very end of the military dictatorship, which started in, I want to say 1976, maybe 1977, um, where the military took over the country, ruled it as a dictatorship and disappeared enemies of the state um, uh, in, in a kind of systematic way that got worse and worse and kind of spread wider and wider and became more and more vicious. The military junta is removed. Argentina goes back to being a democracy. And an opportunity has arisen for the the military junta to be taken to court, to answer for their crimes and to be connected to the disappearances of all all these people. Um, It's going to be a difficult case because they are simply going to stand there and say, well, I didn't know anything about this. Um, So how is this case going to be built? And we are introduced to Julio Cesar Strazera, who is the lawyer who eventually is offered the case to take uh, to prosecute against the military junta. Um, problem number one is that he needs to build a team of lawyers and absolutely none of his old buddies are interested in teaming up with him. Um, the military are very well respected in Argentina. They are firmly part of the establishment. Um prosecuting them or not even successfully prosecuting them but standing in court and prosecuting them is a risky business which no one is willing to take part in so he is forced into recruiting a team of very very young lawyers and and this is what he does so we're introduced to this man we're introduced to his family we're introduced to his quest to get a team of lawyers he gets them all together they're all super young there's a fun fun montage of all the interviews of um of all these wannabe lawyers and then the case begins um and i was pleasantly surprised by argentina 1985 um, we've recently watched a few based on true life films. So we watched Kalev, the the basketball film from Estonia. Um, and that film fell down because there were no kind of strongly defined characters. And this arguably doesn't waste too much time on characters. But what it does do is it just has little touches here and there, which just make these people kind of living, breathing people beyond the plot of the film, which I had a lot of time for. So we've got the, the family talking like a family. They talk about stuff that families would talk about. Um, rather than the plot of the film, we've got um, the the lawyers talking about the, the the younger lawyer's relationship with his mother, which, granted, is a subtext for the entire kind of mood of Argentina towards the military. But it was it was fairly nicely played, um, and I I really I didn't hate this film. I, it's two hour twenty minutes running time, kind of rattled by for me. I thought the performances were nice and strong. Partic- I mean, obviously, Ricardo Daran as the, the main character. Um, I was really taken by his quiet, polite, gentlemanly way of doing everything. I thought that was nice. I thought it was including the cigarettes. Inc- very much including the cigarettes, because unlike Kalev, um, this is a film where everyone is smoking all the yeah. time, just all the time. And Ricardo Darren's way of handling cigarettes, it, it was it was light, light fingered, light. It was a light touch. It was gentlemanly. It was elegant. It was suave and sophisticated. And that's kind of how he carries himself through this film. Um, and he kind of won me over and the, the film itself won me over with it. Like it, it's yes, it's a little bit like a Wikipedia page, but but here's the here's the crime. 
the crime that I'm always looking out for is um, was personified for me by Steven Soderbergh's film Shay, where I didn't know much about the Cuban Revolution going into what Shay, and so I sat down and watched it. And there's two things I'm looking for in a film like this. Number one, I need to understand the situation a little bit by the end of the film. And number two, I need to understand a little bit how it felt to be involved in that thing. And coming out of Argentina in 1985, I've got two ticks on both of those. Um, I did, could not go on Mastermind and answer questions about the military dictatorship of Argentina at all. And this film does gloss over yep. the complexities of the case in favor of having like two or three people provide very kind of um, emotionally heart-wrenching testimony in court which kind of like so it so it boils it down to uh just just these few people so so i understand what happened to this person and this person but i don't really understand the kind of the the bigger picture of it um i understand a little bit about how it felt because it must have been tense must have been unpleasant you know people are messing with your family a little bit also noteworthy and perhaps a little bit of a spoiler nothing much really happens in that respect but the Mm -hmm. film makes but the film makes a lot of noise about, but something might happen at any moment, right? Never does, but it might. Um, so, you know, slightly tense. Um, so I, you know, I kind of enjoyed Argentina 1985. I would recommend it to people looking for a kind of a, a Sunday afternoon movie. It's not my film of the month out of these five. But yeah, I'm, I'm, that's my position on it. Yeah, you, you are same, I think. Pretty much, yeah. It's a, it's a well-made film. Hmm. Um mostly aimed at those that love courtroom dramas yeah without the drama yeah that's the that's the key point for me it feels wikipedia like which i agree with um again the performances i agree with i mean as we know ricardo darwin if anyone has ever watched an argentine film he will be in it and he will be excellent yes same as here as as we said offline to each other ben death taxes and darwin like that's pretty (laughs) much how it goes um so he's faultless, really. There's a bit of humour in there, which mm-hmm. is welcome for a film that is long and is emotional. Mm-hmm. The number one takeaway for me, Ben, is actually the fact that there's actually, and it very rarely do I say this, and it and it's not the case for all the other lengthy films in this episode. Mm-hmm. For me, in this film, there's a genuine attempt to speed things along. Yes. It doesn't feel two and a half hours well it does in the sense that it's too long like that you can't get away from that it's you 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 check like the time on it it's like one hour 20 and you think bloody hell i got another hour and 20 to go like it is long that it's simply not getting away from that but at least it doesn't feel that way when you're watching it Um, you will keep checking the time because you will be curious but um when you're about two hours in it doesn't feel like you're eight hours in so the pacing of it is fine. The editing, therefore, is also fine. So mm. there's a lot to make and appreciate the technicalities behind this film. But mm. also agreeing with what you've said about a lack of teeth, perhaps, yeah. um, in exchange for testimony, 100% agree on that because the big problem is not only are the testimony pieces lengthy, mm. they also cover the same sort of ground. Yeah. So they're all about either something that happened to the family with a torture element or, well, I mean, that's pretty much what they are. They're essentially what happened to him, what happened to her, what happened to them, what happened to us. And one of those would have been fine for for there to be at least two or three of these pieces of quite long testimony. 
just makes me think, is that the best thing that this film can do? Because it's, it's going down the Wikipedia thing, but then yeah. it's shoehorning in lengthy emotional stuff. Yeah. I think what you needed to have done is maybe have a bit more context and a bit more of the emotional stuff outside the courtroom. Yeah. And have the courtroom itself as being a bit more of a Wikipedia thing. It, what it, it tends to do is actually have the Wikipedia stuff on the outside and yeah. then it f- literally with things that pop up saying the year, location, yeah. um, etc. But in the courtroom, it just sort of gets bogged down with repetitive testimony. Yeah. Um, it's such, but, it's, it's a really difficult thing to do because what you're talking yeah. about is here's something that affected an entire country, but what you, what you show and focus on is here's this one person. And it like, it, it often takes me back to Schindler's list. There's um, yeah. a scene where they're clearing out the, the one of the ghettos. And instead of trying to focus on the enormity of, what's happening and the, the 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 trauma for this entire situation they focus on a girl in a red coat because that as though that's the only way you can make an audience care about something is by focusing on one person and 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 bringing a, an enormous tragedy down to like a, a personal tragedy indeed it's not a crime it works yeah but, but it's noted it yeah. is noted and not entirely unexpected either, to be fair, Ben, because let, let, let's just remember, Argentina, 1985. So the vast majority of the people that see this film won't have a clue. No. The vast majority no. of people who see this film won't have any connection to it or even the era at all. So what, what, else, what what's it yeah. supposed to do? What What is it supposed to do? Like the film wants to tell us the dates, the locations, the people... And to make us understand how serious the trial was, it then brings in the emotional testimony of families being pulled apart, people being tortured. And all of us will have seen something on the news within the last 10, 15, maybe 20 years of that happening in the world. So they've done nothing wrong with doing this. It's not a criticism per se. It's just that for me, I just wanted something different in a two hour, two and a half hour long courtroom drama. Um, some drama would have been nice, frankly. I mean, so, you've got the uh, the attempts that something might happen to the family. Yeah, the little bits, little bits, literally 5, 10, 15 minutes in total, probably. Yeah. Um, but look, in summary, it's serviceable, it's fine. If you're Argentinian, it's probably a masterpiece. Mm. I'm, because, I'm, I'm intrigued to know what an Argentinian thinks of this because presumably it's a situation they know back to front. Indeed. If they weren't directly around that era, then they will know somebody that was, either a parent or if if if, if nobody that they can think of knows about it, surely it would have come up in a history book somewhere for them. Surely it would have been taught at in school. Surely mm. it's referenced in other films on TV or whatever it is. There's no way, if you're Argentinian, that this film doesn't mean something. Yeah. There's practically no way. And and it's nicely cinematic. It's more cinematic yeah. than you might expect it to be as well. There there are those moments on the balcony. I wasn't expecting those, seeing all the people watching TV and looking down onto the streets and just bits here and there. The choice of making it is it I'm not sure if it's four by three, but the the aspect ratio is this is very very close to tv so towards the end of the film they can show actual footage of the trials intercut with the film and it yeah becomes difficult for you to know what's what which works really nicely like it, it makes some nice visual filmmaking choices that, that i was not expecting yeah and i just think oh uh, yeah i think we're in agreement that every 
every Argentinian parent or I'd like to know an Argentinian thinks about this because every parent of somebody um, yeah. of mid of thirty five or older, yep. or well forty, we'll call it forty and older, will have some recollection of this. Um, yeah. I can just about remember stuff from when I was five, six, seven, um, and I highly suspect that a lot of Argentinians would as well. So yeah. it's yeah. So forty plus Argentinian would probably find this an absolutely masterpiece. For the rest of the international audience, including myself, not a strong impact, Ben. If I'm honest, no, no, it's uh, it's like a, a six out of ten. Like, um, I, I I enjoyed it. It kind of flew by. I'm probably not going to watch it again. No, recommend it to people for that Sunday afternoon kind of feeling, I where mean, you can literally go and attend the potatoes, come back, miss about twenty to thirty minutes, and they're still in the courtroom having a chat. So yeah, and, you, and you'll you'll still be able you'll keep up with what's going on. Yeah, yeah, and the yeah. and if you've missed one piece of emotional testimony, the next one's just around the corner. So, yeah, exactly. Let's move on then. So yeah. nomination, Germany. Number, yeah, Germany nomination number yeah. two. It swept the floor at the Baftas recently. Yeah, Apparently, the Baftas are still a thing. Anyway, yeah. what have we got, Ben? And what is it? I think we all know, but let's just talk about it anyway. So it's this is all quiet on the Western Front. Oh yeah, yeah. This, <laughs> this is not the nineteen twenty seven. Lewis Milestone film. 1930? 1930, maybe? Ooh, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but not the Lewis Milestone version. It is the 2022 Edward Berger film, um, produced by Netflix, I believe, um, and given just enough of a cinema release to be nominated for an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> I think we won't watch in that Netflix. Um, is a summary essential for All Quiet on the Western Front? It is adapted from um, a novel written by someone who fought in World War One. Um, it is this version is the uh, a young German soldiers terrifying experiences and distress on the Western Front during World War One. Um, all quiet on the Western Front. I now here's the thing. I went in expecting it was the opposite to Argentina 1985. I went into all quiet on the Western Front expecting big cinema. Yeah, um, I was expect, uh, expecting big spectacle. And let's talk about the problem with war films and spectacle. Mm -hmm. When you make a war film, what you're saying on one hand is look at how terrible this is. Look at how awful this is. Look at how dehumanizing this experience is. While on the other hand, you're saying, but look at the spectacle, look at the booms and the, and the flashes and the make it look as good as possible. What a a light show war was. Yeah. It's a very, very difficult position to be in. Yeah. Also, um, if you're making a war film in 2022, you have to come to terms with the fact that Elam Klimov made Come and See in 1985 and rendered pretty much all war films a bit null and void ever since then. So, so you've got it. So it's a very, very difficult position to be in. Um, so I went into All Quiet on the Western Front expecting a spectacle, expecting cinema. That's what I was expecting. Um, it starts off in kind of familiar territory where we get five friends who are all off to enlist for the army in World War One. It's early days as well. Um, the war has the war's only been going for a little bit. One of them hasn't got the approval of his parents, so he hasn't actually signed his enlisting form. And all his friends are like, "Ah, you loser!" So he signs it there and then, and then they go and enlist, and it's all fun and japes. And then they get to the front and it's slightly less fun than they were expecting it to be. Indeed. And um, 
and then the rest of the movie kind of plays out and it's in a tricky spot to it's it's in a tricky spot not just because of like isn't war terrible look at the spectacle how do we deal with this but also making a war film you have a lot of young male actors who are all wearing identical costumes all standing around and you have to know who everyone is at sight so think think john carpenter think the thing how do you identify a group of men standing together very quickly oh i know you you give one of them a big hat you give one of them a this you give one of them a that or like all quiet in the western front you just go forget about it we got two people for you and that's Indeed. what we're gonna do for the rest of the movie that everyone else is can go whistle <laughs> we've got guy with a tash guy without a tash <laughs> no one else matters in this movie yeah which which was an interesting way of dealing with a problem so we're watching these kind of like hopeful souls slowly ground down by the reality of what war is because it's a nightmare particularly the first world war and existence in the trenches um coupled with this we have a storyline about these people trying to end the war so we've got a train load of german officers who are all very well dressed and they eat very nice food and they're meeting a bunch of french generals um, and they're discussing the end of the war so the way this film plays out is on the one hand you've got the young boys on the front on the other hand you've got the train load of people trying to end the war and it kind of goes back and forth between these two things until we get to the end um and like i say i was expecting spectacle i was expecting something boombastic perhaps um i was not expecting a tv movie which is which is what i got here um it felt really really staid conservative Mm -hmm. middle of the road very safe Mm -hmm. um world war one was horrific uh we as human beings should feel ashamed of it um it was awful and pointless and millions of people died for basically no reason in some of some of the dumbest decisions ever made and this didn't give me any of that this this gave me something else um it's yeah and it's very sanitized as well very cleaned up um i have spoken to other people who found it very upsetting and found it very gory i completely disagree if you go and watch the what's it what's it called they they shall not grow old that documentary by peter jackson oh when when he put color into the black and white videos yes 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 um and the 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 you know the the war footage is horrific it's just just awful what happens to people is is it doesn't bear mentioning. Um, and yet what this film does is, is tidy it up, sanitize it, airbrush it all out, make it respectable, make it a Sunday afternoon television event. And I'm not sure how I feel about that, Theo. Um, I also, not that that's a point, this is the point of the podcast, but I also, I watched this back to back with G.W. Pabst's 1930 film, West Front, which um, is about exactly the same thing and is adapted from another book written by a, a German soldier who fought in World War One, who then wrote a book about his experiences. And it's basically the same film as this. Um, yeah. It starts off with a group of friends, all um, happy, and then things change, and it's horrible. And by the end, it's just awful. Um, it's, it was crazy to me to watch these two things back to back. And also, just a fun thing to consider, is the fact that when Pabst made West Front, it's 1930, um 
no one knew about what was coming next. But when Edward Berger made All Quiet on the Western Front 2022, we all know what comes next. We're yeah. all very conscious of what, what happens after World War I. Um, and the, the parallel storyline about the, the German officers on the train trying to negotiate the end of the war, you've got this central character. I can't remember the name of the actor who plays him. He was in like Marvel movies. And he's supposed to be our kind of goody if yeah. you like, he's, he yeah. dresses differently. He speaks differently. He's arguing the case for an end to the war as quickly as possible, no matter what it takes. And so eventually this peace treaty is rushed through. Um, it's signed as quickly as possible. And the way that this film plays it, that character is is our kind of hero. He's kind of like, he's almost, he's speaking like the kind of like contemporary person might um, yeah. in this film. So he's, he's rushing through this peace treaty and the war as quickly as possible. But of course, what happened next is the, hold on, years later, not that many years later, some years later, the, the reparations against Germany are, are one of the direct causes for one of the even worse things yes. that have ever done. Um, so this rushed through negotiation on the train, which this film touts as a kind of hero act. You know, this film ends with a title card saying, you know, 18 million people lost their lives. And World War Two is just like, well, hold my beer. I will mm -hmm. I will show you I will show you what numbers can be. Um, I, I didn't get on with this film. Um, it's safe. It's stayed. It's conservative. Just my opinion. Um, it looks like a TV movie. Everyone is acting like a TV movie. It has no teeth, even though it's dealing with World War One. Um, it puts on spectacle when spectacle isn't what you isn't appropriate, and also that spectacle is really by the numbers. And yeah, this is this is not my film of the month. Nor it is mine. So yeah, for me, this is a series of shorts combined to make a movie. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And and to that end, Ben, I'm going to review each and every short. Or as many oh, as that I can, or as many as that I can remember. Let me get a chair. Hold on. Let me get a chair for this. There's quite a few shorts in this film. So, right. First of all, you mentioned the trench bit at the beginning. Mm. It's fine. It's 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 okay. I've seen it a million times before, and I'll no doubt see it a million times more. Um, not really about any one individual. It's just a collective clusterfuck, which is it's fine. It's okay. You know, I've seen it many times before. Yeah. Then the move to the farmyard. So it's a change of change of scene, change of pace. Um, far, far too early to have young men started talking about normal lives um, mm. because the conflict hasn't been going on that long yet. So that was a bit of an odd choice anyway to jump all the way from the trench stuff to now it's over for now. They're on the farm just sort of chilling, cooking a goose or, or getting a goose from a farm. This is the goose scene, yes. Yeah, of course. It's, um, yeah. but then you had, then you had um, no Tash and somebody else um, kind of just having a chat on the swings about... Uh, how, how the wish lives would be back to normal. A bit early for that, really. A bit of an odd step to include something like that. Surely after about an hour and a bit, you know. But anyway. Is that the bit where they're having a poop and reading the letter? Uh, maybe. Maybe so. A lot of the, a lot of the detail has passed me by, um, which is this film in general. Um, next, we've got Hunting for the Missing Regiment. Again, it's okay. It's something a bit different. Um, don't necessarily expect that scene to go as you want it to. Yeah. Um, you're sort of expecting some sort of an ambush or something. 
doesn't yeah. doesn't work out that way, and you you find the missing regiment, and it's like, hmm, okay, that's at least a little bit different. Yeah. Then you get the ceasefire negotiation, which you've already mentioned. So you know, it's uh, then we go back to the trenches for a bit after that, and they sort of go in between the negotiations and the trenches. Yeah. Um, best bit of the film by far is that bit because it's it, it does remind us what, that the decisions that were made and the people that were making them were just completely inhuman. Um, And the good, good notice on the croissants being um, out of date and stuff. Yes. Um, And and how much of a stink that caused because everyone was dressed in their finest. The food had to be perfect all to look for this, um, this treaty that was, that was eventually forthcoming in the negotiations. So good to have that in there. Um, Probably my favorite bit up to that point. And we're, we're approximately an hour or so in hour and a half in we've still another hour to go what (laughs) okay exactly um then then we've got the ceasefire reached agreed and then we head to the infirmary um again it's fine it's okay it's not particularly memorable it's Mm -hmm. the the decisions made or the blah 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 blah. it's fine and the the infirmary just makes you know everything quiet and there's, there's people screaming in pain uh, there's an incident with a cutlery and suicide, which is odd. Um, I, I was out of the room for that bit. Yeah. Um, I, ca- I came back in and, uh, yeah, I was informed of what had happened. That had like, happened. And it just happened while I was out of the room. Yeah. So then it, so then it tries, to, tries to do the thing where, oh, the wars had such an effect that actually people would still rather be dead than living in a free this, that, or the other, or whatever. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was okay. Then the film gets a little bit just a little bit better towards the end for me okay. so there's another oh, set I, of, would, I would agree with that yeah there's, so it does end well so it's mm-hmm. around the last 30 to 40 minutes or so we yeah. go back to the farmyard at the beginning and that was a genuinely good moment of the film for me yes um so again it's peaceful it's quiet there's there's, there's rumors of the of the ceasefire kicking in very very soon so surely, Ben, you wouldn't want to take any unnecessary risks. I mean, I know I wouldn't. <laughs> I know I wouldn't. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, one particular soldier decides that he will take a risk and return to the farmyard where he's previously stolen a goose. Won't spoil it in case you haven't seen it, but those were good scenes. I enjoyed yeah, them. I was, I was, I was hooked. Yeah. Yeah. Mo- and mostly because it's just deathly quiet. So yeah. when anything does happen in those scenes, it's more noticeable. Yeah. Um, so that was a great moment. And then, of course, with the final bit, which we shall call 10.45 a.m., yeah. uh, the actual minute of the ceasefire and the absolutely pointlessness. Pointlessness. The whole thing is, obviously, yeah. but the utter, utter pointlessness of that final, final charge yeah. that, w- that was just for, done for ego purposes, not for any other reason, knowing yeah. full well that some people would die with a ceasefire already agreed. Um, and yes, it gets a bit corny and a bit cinematic and a bit, you know, a, a singular dove flying off to the sky level shit um, <laughs> at around ten forty-five um, to the second. But it's but not a surprise. It's, it's not a surprise, but it's it's well done. It's it's a nice bunch of scenes. Yeah. Um, it's it's going for the jugular. I'm far 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 too long in the tooth of a war films to have my jugular pulled, Ben. But. Yeah. Um, it's it's good. So for me, if you've heard what I've said so far, it's basically okay, 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 good, good. Yeah, so, I, I I would 
offer people the challenge, not a challenge, actually, um, but to watch this back to back with GW Pab's 1930 film Westfront as well, and then and then give it a few weeks and then try and remember what the hell happened in which film, <laughs> because they are so similar. Yeah, it, it's almost identical. It's astonishing. So, what can we say about it? Really, it, it, again, definitely far too long. Definitely um, far too long. Like, and it, also Tash Guy for me was the main event in this film. Yeah. But he's not the main character. Our main character is Paul. He's the avatar that we yeah. watch every yeah. But it's the Tash guy was the standout in this entire film. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's it's a serviceable war film. It's mm. it, it does what it it is done what war films have always done. It literally yeah. does two or three scenes that I hadn't quite seen before and I enjoyed them as I said. Yeah. Um but you know in terms of recent war films, I prefer The Rifleman. Me too. Like, it, it, it was, it, it, or otherwise known as Blizzard of Souls, in case some of you are confused. But that, that was a terrific <laughs> film. Um, yeah. but, but and that, that, that mentioned something about war that I didn't know either. Exactly. Um, which, which helps, but also it had far, far better characterization. Like literally, the yeah. brother and his brother in The Rifleman. That's it. That's the film. Like, no, nothing else really matters. Yeah. Here, I think, or quite on the Western Front, really does try to make us like Paul and his comrades, but yeah. it's practically impossible to do so because we just don't get to know them. No, there's nothing. There's nothing to to grab onto about them. No, Tash, Tash guy can't read. Tash guy has a wife back home. Tash guy is experienced and knows that you shoot, move, shoot, move, shoot. Like we learn so much about Tash guy, and he's. Uh, uh, it would have been so easy to have done that stuff about Paul. But I mean, we we'd, we would easily have said, "Oh, if if there'd have been too much Tash non Tash Paul comrade stuff, mm-hmm. um, we would have moaned about that as well." But yeah. th- th- we can also simply moan that there wasn't enough. That's just yeah. an unmistakable fact. So yeah, just serviceable for me. Um, and yeah, for the most one of the most impactful things in the entire movie to be the screen the um the slide at the end that gives the numbers again, just in case you forget what the numbers are. Yeah. Um, they are utterly atrocious and it breaks it down into an actual land mass. So you know how, how, how big the Western front actually was. Yes. Um, that was the most impactful stuff. Yes. So, and just the, the lunacy of the, of trench warfare. Of course. The lunacy of spending years with no movement whatsoever. No. Just a back and forth over literally less than 500 meters ground. It's, mm. But yes, there you go. I've literally spoiled the film for you. Like, yeah, um, yeah. There's a, never mind the, the two hour, the previous two hours and twenty nine minutes. You can get all your impact from the final, final, final screen before the credits roll. It's very so, strong. So therefore, the film hasn't done a good enough job. And what a bit one a BAFTA though. It will win the Foreign Language Oscar. <gasps> no, do you think it will? It's so can, garbage. I can't see. I- uh, I mean, this, this is nothing to do with personal taste. I'm just trying to get what the Academy think. Okay. Um, they'll see it's big budget. Netflix have... Um, we know that they don't boycott Netflix films anymore. They've just accepted it. that They can't do nothing about it. Last year, there was a Netflix winner, of course, on, on um, or two years ago, I think it was. So, yeah, they are okay with Netflix films. Um, it's it done well at the BAFTAs. It justifies the whole thing with the spectacle, um, or, or bit to what it thinks is a spectacle, not necessarily what we think. Um, unless okay. unless the donkey film from Poland or Lucas Dont's latest film is a mm-hmm. true, true masterpiece. And even if it is, 
mm-hmm. they are they are more quote unquote traditional um, narrative films, whereas the it would regard All Quiet on the Western Front as an essential world cinema war film that the world cinema category was put on earth to do, Ben, according True. to the Academy. I, I didn't understand that war was bad until I saw All Quiet on the Western Front. Indeed. Because um, it doesn't wave a flag as such. So no. I, think, I think the Academy will approve of a war film that doesn't wave the flag, even though most of its films it's ever rewarded for itself, or yeah. American war films that wave the flag. But um, <laughs> mm, I'm, str- I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely struggling to think why the Academy wouldn't give this the Oscar. Okay. Well, if we, I mean, if, if we've seen Lucas Dant or Skolomowski's film, maybe we'd know why they might not. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I hear what you're saying. Indeed. But we're not done. No. With the finalists, because we've got one more. We were we did able to get uh, three out of five, as we said. Yes. So let's move on to The Quiet Girl then, Ben, which is representing Ireland for the first ever time in this category. Very exciting. Directed by Columb Braid, a kitchen sink not-so-drama. <laughs> and we've said that before about a nine-year-old girl named Coit. Coit! From a dysfunctional family that goes to live with distant relatives for the summer, living with middle-aged, living with a middle-aged farm couple, Coit discovers a new way of living and essentially what is to be parented properly. What is the meaning of life? Mm. Ben, this is a nice film with a lovely ending. Yeah. That's yeah, all I've got to say about it. <laughs> no, of course, of course not. But I would expand it a little, but only a little. Mm-hmm. So the first half an hour, Ben, is ploddy for me. Yes. Don't know whether you agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But when Coit finally leaves her dysfunctional family, that doesn't really go into a lot of the dysfunctional things. But nevertheless, we are told yeah. they are dysfunctional. So they are. So she goes off to the, the farm, goes to the countryside, Um Spends time with this middle-aged couple, middle-aged farming couple. It, it then becomes a quaint film. Mm. It then becomes a charming film. Mm. It then becomes a very pretty film. Ben. Yep. Um, now I know the cinematographer from All Quiet to Western Front has had a lot of plaudits for his work, but I'm sorry, the cinematography uh, in The Quiet Girl wipes the floor. A hundred percent. It's a very, very beautiful film. Yes. Um, so performances in this film, absolutely fine. Little girl's pretty spot on, as are the farmers and the farmer's wife, pretty spot on. Uh, and it's just a pleasant little film. It's, you know, a girl who's being taught the basics of life. So she's she's learnt to value fresh, clean water, cooking, hygiene, um, love, essentially, for pretty much the first time in her young life. Yeah. Um, very little actually happens, Ben, either at a micro level or a macro level for me. Um, there's really not anything going on in terms of subliminal messaging or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It's not a great artistic piece that falls in the auteur category at all. It's just a pleasant, decent quality, nice film. Um, could it win the Oscar? No. But for <laughs> me, I would prefer it if it did. Yes. It's far, far more consistent in what it wants to achieve. It's yes. more enjoyable. It's yep. better in all yep. aspects of filmmaking. Yep. Um, it's my film of the month, to be frank. Um, so that's I've I've run out of things to say. I don't really know what else I can bring to this discussion, Ben. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it. It's the most Theo film on the entire list. Yeah. Um, so that was always going to win. But when I say it's the most Theo film, the most like a Theo film, I would 
Theo would normally prefer a lot more macro level stuff um, via the micro that just doesn't happen in this movie. It's literally a plain storytelling of young girl who finally gets some parenting and some love and some affection and how much her, her life has obviously just been changed for the better during the summer. That's literally what the film is. There's nothing else going on. Um, yeah. But I enjoyed it that much that I would consider Colin Barade's next film. Um, right. he's, he's won quite a few things in his own country for this, which I would agree with because it's a handsome, wonderful looking film as well as it just being well put together well written well edited good pace all yep. the rest of it so i've got no major faults for it other than just maybe a little bit of a a bit more hidden messaging and stuff like that which i don't think's there okay. but um yep yeah, does for me ben film of the month um wouldn't exactly rush to see it again anytime soon but uh, my first initial run through of this film was quite enjoyable okay that's okay i'll, I'll, I'll take that quite enjoyable so i sat down to watch this with an expectation in my head because it's it's not a, a UK film but it's an Irish film and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that Ireland is the same as the UK but culturally and cinematically um, we are very similar so yeah. I, I, I sat down with the expectation that I was going to watch a British film I'm not saying Ireland's part of Britain <laughs> I'm not saying that for a second hence kitchen sink used at the beginning of the review yeah um, so I I thought this is going to be a bit British, and and for me that's an immediate negative against something. If something is a bit British, it's very difficult for me to warm to it. Then you've got that coupled with the double whammy of this is a film that pairs uh, a young child with an older person in a, with a message to inspire hope, and uh, that is anathema to me. All that kind of central station, yeah. Yeah. cinema paradiso stuff. It just it just makes me the bold. railway children. The <laughs> railway children. I'm like, <laughs> I sat down to what was gripping the arms of the chair, like mm-hmm. white nails. Like I'm gonna hate this so hard, um, and that absolutely did not happen at all, um, because this is a very very kind of underplayed, sweet, quiet elegant very handsome film for what it is um and i I just absolutely fell in love with it more and more as it went on um i'm not sure if this is related to the fact that it's set in 1981 i was a child in 1981 and that this is very very much the world that i remember as a as a kid so that that kind of ploddy first 20 or 30 minutes of the film um, very much connected me to what it was like to be a child back in the old days where the cu- currently children are the, the center of things. Uh, things are done for children and things, about them and things are about without them. them. Yes. Yeah. They, it happened. Things happen around them. Yeah. Whereas like being a child in 1981, grownups are going to do what the grownups are going to do. And you just have to, to breathe the air in that space. So the the kind of the conversations that so there's there's a bit where they're driving and her father picks someone up and they they have a kind of a, elliptical conversation where they're saying things that obviously have other meanings to them, and but you're constantly seeing everything from the perspective of this child. So you're kind of locked out of what this secret adult world is. So the the illusion is possibly that this lady has slept with the father, that this the father sleeps with a lot of people. He's a bit of a tear away, a bit of an awful guy. 
Um, but that's never stated. Nothing in this film is ever, ever underlined or stated. Everything is always suggested and implied. And you're watching it through the eyes of a nine-year-old girl who doesn't quite understand everything. And it's really, really well done. And then you've got her going to the to stay with the old couple. And that, that that's when I thought, this is when I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be sick in a bucket. It's going to happen. But it, but it never happens because it's just really nicely played out. Um, the, 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 it's just nice people doing nice things. Beautiful ending. Absolutely yeah. pitch perfect ending for a film. Um, it's not a spoiler, but the end of this film is one word said twice. Yeah. And it packs a hell of a punch. Um, it's really well done. The The only bits that fall down for me in this film are the the scenes set in her her family home, because those are the bits where everything gets a bit British. Yeah. And what I mean, what I mean by British is they, they get a bit overwritten and p- play for a day and a, a bit performative. Um I don't know. I, I feel like British cinema is kind of living in the shadow of Alan Bennett a bit, where everyone a bit to, more like yes <laughs> has to do this kind of like funny wordplay and everything. Yeah. Everything's so structured. British films don't play out like you're like you're watching life happen in front of you. They they play out in a very structured theatrical play like way, and the the scenes in her family home are very much like this, particularly the bit where the the distant relatives are having that chat with the mum at the end. It's just like all my kind of hatred of British cinema started building up in those bits. But I want to gloss over those and say that in general, really enjoyed this. 100% this is my film of the month. I would love to see this win the Oscar. Yeah, It's not going to. No, it won't. Um, but the reason it is, the reason it's even there, Ben, is because of the ending for me. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. literally just ticks the box of, yeah, that's the moment. You know, we always talk about it. The moment that gets clipped for the ceremony. Yes, yes. It's, it's 100% going to be. That that ending scene. And all the, like, the, the, yes, I can see that. And also, the, we also talk uh, quite a bit about films that end at just the right point. Yeah. Well, and this is like to the frame, that's the right moment to end. Like it's it's really so it's a very very involving emotional um, way of ending a film. No spoiler. It, it, it's a, it's a, it's ultimately it's a classy film. It's a classy yeah. film made by classy people, and they they understand sophistication and nuance. Yeah. Um, is it a masterpiece? No, it isn't. But um, it's, it's much better than most British films. Oh, hell yes. And I know it's British, but I'm just going to lump everyone in culturally together. No, no. I mean, my long-term hatred of British cinema is is probably only matched by yourself by the sounds of it, then. It's, it, <laughs> we, that's, I mean, literally, even if there's a British film in a foreign language, we still wouldn't do it on this podcast. No, no absolutely. Because um, I, don't, I don't trust it to be anything but benefits chat in a different language. Like, it's just, it, it ain't getting, so, you know, not, absolutely not. Um, so yeah, no, kudos to the whole team behind the choir girl. Um, it, it it's done well in its own little way. The early the early momentum was with the quiet girl. Yeah, um, and then we move on to the um, they they play that the, the balance of who this film is about is really nicely shifted from one person to another. So that we learn about people, we're, we're taken up the garden path a little bit with where we think things are going to go. I think 
and then yeah. and then things are revealed slightly differently the emotional big emotional moments in this film are super super quiet yeah so somebody putting a biscuit on a table um prop of the month <laughs> it was a gorgeous moment and yeah. i hate this i hate saccharine cinema and yeah. this kind of stuff and this is not that at no. all this genuine human connections and like you're watching a girl who just like who's been just ignored for nine years suddenly have attention paid to her and it, it does not overplay its hand at all not at any point does it kind of like does it kind of draw the sympathy out of everything it, it goes just enough and then it stops yeah, I mean, the biscuit was proper the month for me because it's just such a, it's just a look. You, you, you're waiting for the moment because obviously, obviously it goes without saying that the farmer's wife would automatically get on with the girl because yeah. maternal instincts kick in. Yeah, and you, you almost guarantee that the far, the farm, the farmer's husband, as in the, the husband of the wife, yeah. would not get on with the child because he's got too much to do and yeah. he didn't ask for it and it's unnecessary. There's enough going on. And all the rest of it, but in time, bit by bit by bit, mm-hmm. the, the the scenes when they're literally standing in the kitchen, not speaking to each other, and he literally does what he can to get out as soon as possible. Yes. Um, she like, it, and it also starts off with a bunch of half-hearted good nights when she goes to bed. So, but but even that is like really forced. You can tell that it's not meant. Yeah. So you're just waiting for the moment of realization when it clicks to him. That she's a she she's a good all round egg to have around actually, and it actually makes his life a bit better. It's the biscuit, yeah, and and it's it's literally probably about halfway through the film. So again, perfectly judged, perfectly timed, and all the rest of it. So it had to be prop of the month for me. Um, yeah, is your smoking moment yet to come? Oh God, where where is my smoking moment of the month in this? I mean, like honestly, Argentina nineteen eighty five bowled me over with um. Uh, Ricardo's cigarette handling. I no, I'm gonna no, no. I think my smoking moment is to come. Yes, right, that's fine. But, 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 this is, but this is a great smoking film as well because you know that's what being a child in the early '80s was. Everyone is smoking all the time. You're you're in a car. All the windows are closed. Everyone is smoking. You go somewhere. Everyone is smoking. And and this film does that. And, and the most British scene in the entire film was when. The uh, child's father extinguishes his, his cigarette on the dinner plate. Yes, yes, which I, I remember so well. Such a, a weird thing for people to do. The 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 attention to period detail was really yeah, it was good. Really yeah. Well done. The the interiors of the rooms, the clothes, like, excellent. Yeah, clothes were made. Like I've been, I've sat in rooms and looked at things like that, and I was, I was just like, I've, I've seen. I think there was like cups where I've I've, I've seen those cups. I've I've held those cups, um, and yeah, the cinematography just gorgeous for yeah. a film where there's very little movement um it would have been very easy for this to come across like a tv movie um it doesn't um it looks sumptuous throughout which is not an easy thing to do um yeah just loved it but yeah yeah that, yeah that cigarette on the on the dinner plate aye 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 that is hilarious good to see i'm seeing it for i'm seeing it for decades um no. of course if i'd have watched any british film over the last decade it would have been in that but anyway now good luck everybody the very best of luck yeah yeah i'd love to see that let's way. stay positive for them let's stay positive and the academy will do the right thing hmm. Hmm. absolutely so from quietness quaintness charmness uh to bloatedness ben 
bloated bloated what are you talking about is that fair to say are we we going to mexico going back to netflix we're going back to netflix with our first of two semi-final films that didn't reach the final and i'm quite happy that neither of them did (laughs) i mean Um, i can see why this didn't yeah actually i can see why they both didn't yeah indeed so uh let's uh well tell us all about what we got for our next film then ben we have bardo false chronicle of a handful of truths which i absolutely cannot remember those words in that order i need them written <laughs> down. i need them written down yeah like like birdman the virtue of indeed same director of course yes and this is only the second inaritu film i've ever seen i've only ever seen birdman before i never saw morris peros never saw is it 21 grams 27 i've grams? seen i've seen beautiful so this this is the third film i've seen from him never saw beautiful never saw babel I always had the idea that Inaritu's films were going to be a bit middle of the road and a bit pretty and a bit pedestrian and a bit have nothing really to say. I loved Birdman. So I thought, hey, maybe I'm wrong. Let's go back to Inaritu. We have Bardo, false chronicle of a handful full of truths. <laughs> Did I say that right? I think so. <laughs> it is two hours, 39 minutes <sighs> long. And you had I just thinking about it. <laughs> you will feel the vast majority of those minutes as you follow Daniel Jimenez Cacho as Silverio, an avatar for Alejandro Iñárritu. Silverio is a documentary filmmaker. He's not a fiction filmmaker. He is Mexican and he left Mexico. He has found fame and fortune in the United States, just like Alejandro Iñárritu. Mm-hmm. And he's now back in Mexico for something while he awaits receiving an award back in America. And that, that is the film. Um, but also it's called Bardo false chronicle of a handful of truths. And if you have just a, like a a tiny smidge of knowledge about Buddhist stuff, like I do, you know, that Bardo is the state's afterlife, which is a a bit of a spoiler perhaps, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but Hey, Hey, um, so Silverio wanders from one situation to the other throughout Mexico in this film, which is about the things he needs to let go of, his own feelings about Mexico, his relationships with his family, his relationships with his old Mexican uh, colleagues, his attitude towards his own fame and success, his attitudes towards his parents, and so on and so forth. Um, I don't know how to describe this film. It's a it's a it's a series of bits basically. So every time a scene starts, you will ne- now we spend five to ten minutes here on this thing, and then we will leave, and then we will go somewhere else. Um, it is a kind of a spiritual walk through one person's life, and as they try to kind of understand what the point of all of this stuff was. From a cinematic point of view, it bears a lot of relation to the film Synecdoche, um, but there's a very, very crucial difference, which is in the film Synecdoche, I really cared about Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. And there there was risk involved for what he was doing. And he he could he he could break things. Things could go wrong. Um there there were there were there were stakes at play in what he was doing. Whereas in Bardo, false chronicle of a handful of truths, Silverio has no stakes. 
and he has no risk. He simply wanders from one sequence to the next. And the sequences will, will I guess, be hit and miss with, with different viewers. I liked some of the bits. I didn't like some of the other bits. Yeah. I, I can't say what bits other people will like. Um, it starts off and we have a shadow walking through the desert, which then starts jumping higher and higher and higher. I loved that bit. It took me back to lots of dreams I've had where you kind of like you ju- you jump and suddenly you're like, whoa, I've jumped too high. What's and going also on? Birdman, of course. And also Birdman, of course, yes. Um, I loved the moment where he's at a party in Mexico and his old colleague confronts him. It's pretty much the only time in this film Silverio is confronted um, and held to account for what he's done um, in, a, in a kind of like a very effective way. I like that bit. Um, but to be honest, this film kind of washed over me. Um, uh, I, I really, really felt the running time. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, but here's the thing. I'm, I, I want to live in a world where films like this exist and get made. I, I, I don't want to live in a world where we, we can't do Bardo. We can only do All Quiet on the Western Front. I want films which take a risk, which do something different. I have issues with some of the kind of the some of the kind of things about this film but i want films like this to be made um i I didn't like bardo at all um not a fan and i will never watch it again and i won't recommend it to anyone but but i want to live in a world where films like this get made Hmm, paradox um i also don't know how i feel about a buddhist parable being presented through the eyes of someone who has so much wealth and success i, I find that, i find that a difficult place to to do things from um what is it with the um attachment is linked to suffering and i know that silverio is very much you know this whole film is about letting go he did principally he needs to let go of the death of his first child um in the scene where he does kind of metaphorically and physically let go of the death of his first child why am I feeling so cold? Why I should I should be feeling something while I'm watching this, but I'm not. And throughout Bardo, I find myself not feeling anything. Um, you might be different from me. I don't mean you, Theo. I know how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> you, the listener, might feel differently, and you might warm to this film. I really didn't. Um, I think a lot of that might have to do with the lenses as well. I'm I'm not a fan of wide angle lenses and. Boy, oh boy, does this film love. Yeah. Film. <laughs> um, so, I, so I didn't like how most of this looked. I know that you can use wide-angle lenses well. I'm familiar with the work of the Coen brothers. Um, but I just couldn't get on board with this with anything. Um, I didn't like the performances. I didn't like the central character. I didn't like the stuff we were seeing by and large. I liked little bits here and there. Um yeah, and I, I just, like, even, even, and I thought this was amazing, there's a musical sequence right in the middle of this film. I know it's right in the middle because I pressed pause to leave, and I was like, ooh, I'm exactly in the middle of this film. <laughs> and they play David Bowie's Let, Let's Dance, yeah. my least favourite David Bowie song. Of course, of course they choose my least favourite David Bowie <laughs> yeah. song in this film that I'm not enjoying at all. Of course they do. What else would they choose? Um, yeah, that's that's. I, I have more to say about it, but I, I want to hear how much you loved this film, Theo. Indeed. Well, 
forget not that we also did Hand of God recently, as in last oh, year. God. So, need I say more, really? I could easily live in a world where these films don't exist. I would be perfectly happy to be in that world because as bad as Sorrentino's one was, a self-centred, you know, load of kerfuffle. This is much worse. This is worse than Hand of God. Much worse. Like the Hand of God was was positively restrained compared to Bardo Force Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Yes. Um, in terms of its bloated highfalutingness. Like it's just Ben. So mm-hmm. who exactly is Alejandro G. Inaritu? So seven films in twenty two years, so a film every three years. Yeah. So what? So what? Uh, the best of which was for me probably beautiful, maybe. Um, although Birdman was fine, I think. I'm um, a big Bill Keaton guy. And yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think that he, he had a lot to do with that film's success. Really, I mean, I, 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 mean, I like films about film as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah, it, beautiful. Beautiful was also good. Um, you know, Alejandro is sixty, so old enough to have an opinion, but not Roy Anderson, where he's coming towards the end, most probably, and he can't yet look back at the entire existence of himself and make a formed opinion. So he's not quite old enough for me yet. He's definitely trying to be Roy Anderson. Exactly. He's, much. he's acclaimed, Alejandro. We know that. Um, mm. He's a Mexican living in the US. We know that. Um, he's had plenty of wealth from it. We know that. Yeah. So all of that in just didn't sit well with me. But he's not the right person to put a film like this together other than the fact that he wants to. Well, that's never enough reason for me. Like, mm. yes, each and every film is a personal adaptation from the director's something. Yes. 99% of films are literally the director's personal feelings yes. or personal touch about something unless they take it from a book, in which case they'll probably add their own thing to that book. So when I see people say about this film, The Hand of God and others, insert directors here, most personal film, Uh it's lazy, it's irritating to me because all of of their films are personal to them. The only reason that this one would be Inuritu's most personal film is because he's literally doing it in in like, this is my life or this is an interpretation of my life. Apart from that, every single thing you've ever seen Inuritu do is deeply personal to him so enough of that horrible netflix level review of it's his most personal film yet hyphen insert newspaper here absolutely lazy journalism so i'm going to be lazy with my review ben basically (laughs) it's 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 got nothing in it of value it's got nothing that interested me personally and i knew that was going to be the case right at the beginning when a baby gets pushed back into the womb because yes. the baby realised how fucked up the world was. It's it's just the tone. Like, if you want to make a Buddhist parable, I, I don't know, you need humour, perhaps. But I thought this film leaned too heavily on the humour bone throughout. I mean, how original and edgy, Alejandro, pushing a baby back in the womb because the baby realised how fucked up the world is. Like, it doesn't even work as a concept because the baby wasn't born when the world was as fucked up as it is now. Yeah. So yeah, I don't. I, I, assuming that's you as the baby, by the way. If it's just a if it's just a random baby in a random hospital now, yes. But the, yeah. the whole thing at the beginning. Oh my god, the bus full of water and the fish and oh Christ on a bike. Um, <laughs> the 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 the, the, war, the fighting stuff was fine. What was the um, the, st- oh, the, the the reenactment? The reenactment but, stuff was yeah. all right, but that, but that's because reenact, reenactment stuff is always good in cinema. It's always quite fun. Um, but again, Roy Anderson for crying out loud. 
Yeah. There's a man who knows how to do reenactments with a horse going into a cafe, etc. Um, no, look, it's just not my thing. It never, ever will be my thing. I don't want to watch these things ever again unless you are at least 15 years older than you think you are and you've literally got no more energy to make any other film. Um, that, that speech has got me thinking about the version of Bardo, Frost Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, that we'll never get to see, which is made by Werner Herzog. Yeah. About, about a German filmmaker going back to Germany and then playing out like Bardo, but made by Werner Herzog. Oh, that, that, would, be that would be infinitely better than this. I mean, it's on Netflix, so people can make their own minds, but if they really want to yeah. sit there for two hours 40 and do it. Um, but Ben, my final point, and I, and I do mean my final point because I've, I've just... I just don't want to talk about it anymore. Is all the way through this film was one thought for me outside of just the, all the negative things that was going to come automatic. Mm-hmm. The budget, like yeah, no, yeah, I love this concept. Go for it. So it, I just want to know. All it will take was a few clips and everything, mm-hmm. but I just want to how a budget like this in this day and age to make yeah. a film like this can possibly be justified when you've got loads of series being cancelled and people losing jobs. Mm. You've got loads of millions of people losing their subscriptions or moving on to a different thing because they didn't want to pay your thing because you can't share passwords anymore, etc. Blah, 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 blah. And yet you've put together this, which is literally going to irritate most people. Pretty much. Um, And yet that seems like an entirely sensible decision. Like I just, I don't know what Netflix are doing. Like uh, just providing this opportunity, I it, could not stop thinking about this while the movie was playing. It must have cost so much money. I, I, I mean, I will literally. We'll find out off air, shall we? And we'll just, we'll just, yeah, just, yeah. We'll, we'll, just we'll then live, lie down. But but what the thing a waste. <laughs> but I, I kind of love the idea of spending a huge amount of money on something like this. I know, like, I don't like this film. But I do like the idea of taking risks. I'm, I, I, I'm, hey, I'm fine with James Cameron doing it. I'm no problem if he if he wants to do that ridiculous CGI animation, 3D fucking blue face bollocks. Go ahead, like you go and do that and hope he'd claw at least five percent of it back. No yeah. problem because there's an element to art. There is yeah. an element to art about that kind of stuff. Not this. This is just self indulgent shite. Well, um, it's it's the, it's the twinning of that of the idea of spending of. This is this is a business proposition. Bardo Falls Chronicle of a Handful of Truths lived as a kind of um, like a business proposal that was presented to Netflix. A lot of people would have had to talk about it. Yeah, people had to nod, agree, sign things. That there is a, there is business pushing the creation of this film. This is not a film about making money, pleasing an audience, or being business. So I, I kind of love that. Um, but I, I also see your point and it's also difficult for me to a hundred percent get on board the, the presenting of a film, which is about, so it, it, it's basically, it boils down to life is very short and there's no time for fussing or fighting my friend for two hour, 40 minutes. But it also has this kind of, this Buddhist kind of anti, anti money, anti possessions thing yeah. going on in a film which would have cost a huge amount of money um about characters who own multiple homes around the world and they have all the mod cons all the comforts that yeah. modern life can afford you um they have access to exclusive places where other people are not allowed 
and they are the avatars for this kind of like Buddhist parable. I mean, I'm just not comfortable with how all of those things sit together. Oh, the lead characters just told another character, oh, well, the US bought Mexico out. Whoa, yeah. very edgy again, Alejandro, extremely yeah. edgy. And what about towards the end of the film when um, the, the line gets said, uh, he wanted to feel more Mexican in America? Whoa, like this yeah. is just, honestly, I- just... Any others you'd like to say, Alejandro, just to make yourself feel better? You know, I think one mm. in, one interesting moment in this film is when they return to the United States and they get into an argument with the border control guy because I did not understand why any of that was happening, um, and I don't understand what the what the point being made was. Mm-hmm. Whether we're supposed to think that our lead character is now shallow um, and his anger is, un. there's no reason for it? Or are, are we supposed to be on board with him yelling about his right to call the United States his homeland? I, I found that scene very, I didn't understand what it was supposed to do. And like every other scene, whether I enjoyed it or not, I understood what the, what the clockwork mechanism was for that bit yeah but i didn't understand the return to the united states and the fight with border control very not sure i've got nothing else to say about this film let's move on man indeed let's move on as we end this sorry sorry episode outside of the quiet girl with a decision to leave now then some news so semi-finalist was a south korean film police procedural with panache from park chan wook who is a big deal, Ben. He's a very, yeah. very big deal. Um, I think I've seen Old Boy. Uh, I've, I've seen the Revenge Trilogy, all three films, yeah. and Stoker. And I've definitely seen The Handmaiden. Um, okay. So we've all seen a bunch of his films. Yeah. Uh, he's one of, you know, he is without doubt one of the Asian directors that has transcended his continent. You know, he's truly the global face of the country's cinema. So when he puts something out, it's a big deal and it's newsworthy. So it is surprising to me that this didn't reach the final of the foreign language Oscar list. Um, I can only therefore assume that the Polish donkey film and Lucas Dont with Close um, were better than this yep. because they are on that list and this isn't. And I'd like to see those other two films at some point to see why. Anyway, so with Decision to Leave, uh, a detective investigating a man's death in the mountains ends up meeting and developing feelings for the dead man's mysterious wife Mm. in the course of his dogged sleuthing that goes on. That'll do, basically. Um, Ben, so I'm not a courtroom drama, especially non-drama person. How do you feel about procedural cop films? I'm not a war film person, ultimately, despite The Rifleman and despite one or two others in history. Yep. I quite like The Quiet Girl. It's quite a nice little pleasant film. Uh, quite into that. I am not a fan of bloatedness, bloated self-indulgent cinema, and I'm not a police procedural fan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so for me, this episode has been absolute torture outside of an hour and a bit of The Quiet Girl. Yeah. Um, so I've got nothing out of it of personal interest to me all the way through, apart from one little nice little caveat bang in the middle. Um, but more importantly, Ben, and this is the point I want to make for this film. That being said, I, of course, can be converted. I can always, always be converted to a new way of thinking, a new way of enjoyment. Each genre film in this episode today has done nothing to convert me. Mm-hmm. So Argentina 1985 doesn't make me want to watch any more courtroom non-dramas. 
Yep. All Quiet on the Western Front reminds me that I don't need to watch any more war films for the most part. And honestly, Decision to Leave doesn't make me want to watch any more police procedural films. Mm-hmm. Even with Park Chan-wook's as typical, as templated, visual trickery, visual effects. Yep. There's a bit of romance in there just to change the tone a bit because things get quite grubby quite often in this film because South Korean men are a bit grubby. That's yeah. always the case in their films. Um, they're just always something dodgy about Korean men, whether the policemen, whether the gangsters, whether there's a mixture of the two. Um, you certainly don't get that with Japanese cinema. With Korean cinema, you always get the grubbiness, the dirtiness, the darkness, the underbelly. You get that all the time in Korean cinema, especially stuff that reaches the West. Um, plenty of that here. All the stuff I expect in a Park Chan-wook film, mm-hmm. good and bad. So I've always struggled with this cinema in the sense that it, it tends to be a bit more panache and a bit less teeth, maybe. Yes. Um, it tends to be visual uh, style over substance, if I was being ultra-harsh about it. And I think we've got that here as well, if I'm honest. It's very, yeah. very stylish. Not a huge amount of substance. The twists are relatively predictable, uh, what they are. Um, I like some of the touches with the technology and stuff. I like some of the little little police procedural things, which were fine to see now and again. Um, but again, it was just too long. It was approaching two and a half hours for crying out loud. Yeah. Um, unnecessary for a police procedural film to be that long now in this day and age. When you've got police procedural stuff being broken down into 30-minute episodes for series, um, they're that for a reason because they're too long to be films. So I really do struggle with police procedural films that are of a TV series plus length, which mm-hmm. is what this is. Um, and I've really got not much else to say about it. It's not my favourite Park Chan-wook film, um, purely because of his history and his reputation. I am surprised he hasn't made it through to the final list. But I can also see why they didn't put it through, because I don't think, owing to The Quiet Girl, possibly yeah. owing to Close, and possibly owing to the Polish donkey film E.O., um, where I believe stories king, the story is just not all that great here. Considering its length, there's a little bit too much of flim flam, little bit too much of same old, same old. Okay. Uh, nothing authentic, nothing original. Um, which you could accuse Park Chan Wook of doing before, because he does sort of do similar things most of the time. Yeah. Albeit the Handmaiden, which is very different, but again, there was a very, very solid substance with that film, and I struggled with it. So, yeah, it's been a struggle of a film. It's been a struggle of an episode, Ben. (laughs) So uh, I will leave all the positivity, if any, that you've got for this film over to you. So I also am not a procedural cop film type person. And I walked into Decision to Leave without watching the trailer, without reading the uh, synopsis. I knew absolutely nothing about this film. Um, So imagine my surprise when I discover it's a procedural cop film. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm approaching this film from a slightly different perspective, I think. So I have Park Chan work in very much the same category as Bong Joon-ho, which is um, Korean filmmakers who who are more American than Korean. And... I I am of the opinion that Bong Joon-ho and Park Chan-wook are kind of schooling America a little bit. On how to do their own shit. On how to do their own thing. <laughs> um, so what I got out of Decision to Leave was, number one, you have to pay attention to this film. You cannot leave the room no. or, or look away because this 
film starts off in the middle of a conversation about something that you have no idea what it is and it behaves that way for the next like one hour 40 minutes um you really have to pay attention to keep up because it rattles by first they're talking about this case then they're talking about this case then they're in this place then they're in this place then they're imagining something then they're over here and stylistically for a for a cop film i think park chanwick is really schooling america on how you can make a procedural cop film and do it far more cinematically than america is doing like back in the olden days when uh, I went to the cinema to go see the movie Seven, you had that feeling of like, oh, this is what you can do with this kind of movie. I had no idea. Um, I had that feeling with Decision to Leave as well. I thought, oh, this is what you can do with a, with a cop film. You, could make, you can make it this dynamic and you can be this creative and this inventive. There's some really lovely touches in this. So there's a, there's a bit where he, so it's, it's cop investigating the death of a man, the wife is a suspect, so they investigate the wife for a long period. And then the film becomes more complicated. But just staying with that first chunk, there's a bit where he's staking out the wife's house and he's watching her through binoculars while she's um, she's a, a, a caregiver and she's looking after an old lady. And we then he's, he then looks through the binoculars and then we get this um, this queasy kind of contra-zoom moment. And then suddenly he's in the room with her watching her move around. And every time she makes a sound or she speaks, we don't hear anything because, of course, he is sitting in a car watching through binoculars. It's a very kind of creative way of of showing a thing that we've seen a million times in a way that we haven't seen a million times. And the film does that time and time again. Um, It rattles by. I was very wrapped up in the who, where, what, why of what's going on. Um, The twists are not a surprise. But I was kind of enjoying them. I really was. Um, sometimes, I was uh, sometimes it's quite satisfying to get them right in your own head. Doesn't yes. doesn't mean doesn't mean they're weak twists. It means that you've been engaged enough to get the right answer. Exactly. And and this the 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 case of this film is dealing in nice easy answers because either the wife had something to do with her husband's death or she didn't. It's not like there there is no third option or anything. Thankfully. And, and the film and the film plays this out, um, and I was having fun. And we were we're moving between Busan and Epo. I didn't know anything about Epo, so I enjoyed learning about Epo and its fog and its mist. And the, no one goes there for its uh, for the for the climate and stuff. And I was having fun. Um, the characters are fairly well drawn up in that we've got um, shrewish wife. A uh, mysterious Chinese lady who may or may not have murdered her husband. Um, difficult for me to distinguish the cops for a while because of the way this this film plays out. So yep. every every now and then, like we were watching the other one, and I, I was a bit confused. Um, but eventually, I very much got to grips with who the people are, what they're like. Um, we learn a lot about our main character from watching him doing things, yep. which I thought was really nice. Um, and unsurprisingly, I think this film contains my smoking moment of the month as well. In a very, very steeply contested week. It's been, yes. Um, there's a lot of smoking moments in this film. Um, but I think my smoking moment of the month goes to a scene in which there is no smoking. It's when his wife is sniffing him. (laughs) (laughs) He, he, he is an ex-smoker, our central character. He's not allowed to smoke. 
Um, and he is around a lady who is smoking and his wife then smells it on him later. It was just, it was a nice way because this guy is not having an affair with his suspect, but he's thinking about it. Like you were mm-hmm. saying, there's a grubbiness involved. He's thinking about it. And so he's, he's not guilty of anything. He didn't smoke a cigarette. He hasn't had an affair with someone else, but he's thinking about it. And his wife is suspicious. And I just thought that was kind of nicely played out. Um, then this film, it's a very pretty film. There's a lot of kind of uh, visual language going on here. And then it gets to the end. And I was blown away with how much of a handbrake turn the last 20 minutes of this film had for me, where all of a sudden I was like, I don't want to watch this film anymore, which is exactly the response I had to Old Boy. Um when old boy reveals its last like 20 minutes or so, I was like, well, I'm not having fun anymore. I will never watch this movie again. This is awful. Yeah. Decision to leave wasn't on that level, but the, but the, I really, really, I mean, just, I, I just let go of this film in the last 20 minutes. Didn't want anything more to do with it. Um, really disappointing ending. But up to then, I thought it was a lot of fun. Schooling America on how to make um, a cop film. Also, a lot of kind of... I'm not going to say that this is like Vertigo, but there's a lot of Vertigo going on in this film. Um, And Vertigo is a queasy, unpleasant experience. And this film is largely a kind of queasy, unpleasant experience. So so well played, Park Chan-wook. Um, yeah, I, I think a lot of people would enjoy this film. I can see why it yeah. was left out. I think it's too genre. It's too copy. It doesn't say enough about Korea. Um, and it doesn't hit those notes that the Academy is looking for, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, they, they do love themselves some Korean cinema. I mean, obviously, they, they had, a, they had a, the first ever world, um, main Oscar winner from a different country just a few um, years ago. Yes. Um, so, yeah, they, they're into it. Um, but yeah, they want, they want something about society. They want they want something a little bit more empathetic. And th- this is this is a slightly grubby update of Vertigo, um, where motivations are murky. Yeah, but it very much sits in a procedural cop film land for the for the entirety, really. So uh, no doubt we'll be covering his next film at some point. Um, yeah. at an Oscars because it probably will get nominated as he always does and stuff like that. But until then I'm I'm very I'm excited to see the American remake of Decision to Leave because oh, I, God, yeah. I think those conversations are happening right now. And Indeed. Just like the American remake of Old Boy, I bet it's gonna be just as good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's um I, I I um found out the other day, Ben, just as we as yeah. we close this off now, randomly talking about American remakes. Um, a man called Over, the Swedish, oh, yeah. Swedish film. Oh, yeah. uh, the Americans renamed it A Man Called Otto, which I think is utterly <laughs> hilarious to me. Um, anyway, that that literally was just like, oh, okay, yeah, I remember that god awful <laughs> Swedish film, and that's going to be a god awful American version of it, a god awful oh, Swedish wow. film. A man called Otto, a eh? cultural appropriation at its finest. Um, we we um. Richard B. Grant III from Arkansas won't know what Ova is, so we'll call him Otto instead. Um, I, I saw a great tweet about the film A Man Called Otto, where it was like a um, uh, filmmaker. It's about this man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. exec, I bet he's got a really boring name. 
<laughs> filmmaker. He's called Otto, studio exec. <gasps> what? No way. We're in. <laughs> yeah. I see that. Uh, anyway, we're out. We're done. We're, we're done with yeah, the Oscars. So, heart well, on heart, Ben. Heart on heart. What do you think is going to yeah. What do you think is going to win the foreign language well, Oscar? We see. Not having seen EO and Close, I'm 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 torn. I feel like Close might have the emotional punch that the Academy is looking for, but you have won me over a little bit with your all quiet on the Western Front <sighs> speech. I think you might, and also considering the political situation in Europe. Yeah. At the moment, mm-hmm. um, there there are no films about what's going on in Ukraine right now. But maybe All Quiet on the Western Front will do. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it, it's obviously really hard. This is the first time in a few years we've not actually been able to see all five. Yeah. Um, so th- they put those other two on for a reason, and we won't know what that reason is until we watch them. Yeah. Um, I just yeah. I mean, Skolomovsky has never won, and Skolomovsky is long in the tooth. He's the guy who should have made Bardo in a way. Um, Absolutely, it be, should have done. Correct. It, it would have been nice. It's not from it be, as well. Yeah, it would be nice to see Skolomovsky win an Oscar. Um, Lucas Don has only made two films. Can exactly. someone win? can someone yeah. win on their second film? Even though it looks perfect, Academy fodder, but. Having seen Girl, I know that Lucas Don is a very capable filmmaker. Indeed. I'm sure he's done something very interesting with Close, and I am extremely sad that the distributors behind Close wouldn't have <laughs> told us to wait until, what was it, May? No, well, li- literally, yeah, I think April or something. So it's just, I mean, we'll, we will get our hands on it one way or another. It's just it's yeah. just unfortunate. But you've also got The Quiet Girl that has a children-based thing in it. So you've almost got two children films. You've got an animal film. You've got a war yeah. film. And yeah, then you and so political situation film. The Quiet Girl is is by far the best of the films that we oh, saw. Oh, of course, I would love to see that win, and it would mean so much for these filmmakers and for Ireland. Oh, would, God, it, for Ireland, it'd be, it would be absolutely incredible. If the first ever time it was nominated for it to take home the gong, that would be a hell of a story. And it's it's already the highest grossing Irish film ever made. Yeah, um, and and the highest grossing Irish film in Ireland. People are queuing around the block. If it won an Oscar, I think Ireland might have a little a little drink to celebrate. <laughs> yeah, it might. Do. Just, or just or maybe point. maybe make some um, some red currant jam. <laughs> <laughs> As per the film, right? Then, gonna, that's it. Yeah. I'm I'm sticking with the German war effort. You're gonna yeah. you're gonna you're you're, you're uh, obviously coming on that as well. Hopefully, yeah. we're both wrong. Hopefully, yeah. we are. I would Lucas Don standing on stage. Lucas Don cry, crying. Column parade <laughs> via video link or something. Yes, please. That that'd be fantastic. That'd be right. Great. But Ben, we're going to end on a positive note. Oh yeah. A the episode's finished. Woo. B. Rotterdam time next month. No, already. I know. It's great, isn't it? Rotterdam. We've got the films. All sorts promised for next month. All sorts. What a I bit hope- of Asia. We've got a bit of Africa. We've got a bit of traditional Europe. It's going to be fun, 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 Ben. I hope, I hope someone doesn't scupper Rotterdam with their terrible choices. Yeah, well, that would not that would ever happen on this podcast, would it, Ben? <laughs> <laughs> well, can't wait for that. Can't wait for it. So uh, we'll speak to you next month when this sorry, sorry thing is all over. This horrible Oscars thing. Right. Until next time, folks. <laughs>